Father, I want to praise you tonight, Lord, because we have free access to the Lord Jesus. We have free access to the Holy Spirit and free access to God the Father this night. I praise you, Father, because we are in royal company here in this meeting. We are among the princes of heaven. Oh, Father, I want to praise you because this is hallowed ground where we stand tonight. Father, we do thank you because your Holy Spirit is all-powerful. He is able to do such a wonderful work in our midst. He is the one who moves by power within us. And Father, it's so lovely to know that we have a solar battery inside, Lord, which um, produces power just when the sun shines on it. I praise you, Lord, because Jesus is shining on us tonight. He's reigning here. Hallelujah. Father, I want to worship you and thank you for that. Father, I just pray, Lord, that uh, our lives may reflect the essence of God. Father, I pray that tonight our lives may show forth the things that we know. Father, your word says, my people perish through lack of knowledge. Oh, Father, we know that there's been so much controversy about the word of God in the past. So many people arguing about this and that. Father, may our lives just show forth the glory of what we know. May our lives just show forth the truth that we have within us. Oh, Father, I want to be an example, Lord. I'm sure we all want to be an example here tonight. Father, even tonight, will you bless this word that our lives may shine forth for the glory of Jesus and him alone. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We come tonight to the 11th of the series of 12 Bible studies. And I don't know whether you remember the first Bible study that I gave, but I said my aim was that all of us might have peace and stability in our Christian lives and that we might know what it is to be an effective witness for Jesus. And tonight we're coming on to a subject which I think is the most helpful of all the subjects we've dealt with. How to live a peaceful life. Um, how not to get upset at the smallest thing. I think that's the title of tonight. How not to get upset. Romans 8:28. Some time ago I gave a Bible study on the sin of worry. I don't think uh, all of you were there then. But the sin of worry, I think it was from Genesis 15 if I remember. Worry is a major obstacle to effective witnessing for Jesus. Because worry means that you have to think about yourself. You have to think about the things that are coming against you, rather than thinking about the Lord and the things coming out from Him. Worry is in fact saying, God, you're not quite big enough for my circumstances. If I don't worry about them, nothing will get done. That's what it's saying, in fact. Or you're saying, well, I've got to worry about that, because you see, I might miss something. You, I've got so many things to think about. I've got to see all the ins and outs of the problem, in case I miss something. Hallelujah. You as a Christian tonight should know that your God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. There's no part of your problem that he has, hasn't seen. There's no part of it, therefore, that he will overlook. Worry stops you being effective for Jesus. Now, we're all going to get problems. Every single person in this room, as a Christian, is going to get a problem. Jesus himself said, in this world, you have tribulation. You're going to have problems. Um, I remember um, a Christian speaking to me before I was saved and saying, the great thing about being a Christian, he says, is that all your problems disappear. And now I know that that particular Christian certainly was not maturing in the Lord. Because until you have had problems in your life, you cannot know the provision of God to the depths that it's available for you. Until you've had an Elijah experience or a Daniel experience, you cannot know the provision God has made for every person in this room. You can't know it personally. What about Elijah? Elijah had just seen miraculous things occur. He had asked the Lord, will you please stop the rainfall? Fine. And God did it. He stopped the rainfall. Now you would have said, that man is a fantastic man of God. He'll have no problems. Well, he had one big problem in the form of a woman called Jezebel. And, he, and his uh, problem, quite simply, was he was afraid of her. You know, and that's a big thing for a man to be afraid of a woman is a very big thing to be afraid of anyone 
of course, brings you into bondage. And so he then said, Lord, now that I've done this, they'll be after me. And that woman will be after me. What am I going to do? So God said, right, they're going to be after you. There's going to be a drought in the land, but you'll be all right, because I'm going to lead you to a little stream called Cherith. And he gave him directions, and he said, this is the way you go. Any geographer knows, of course, that if you stop the rainfall, a few months later, you also stop the rivers. God knew that as well. I don't think Elijah did, because he shows no sign of worrying about it. I would have worried myself silly. I would have said, but God, I know that runoff is what feeds a river. I know that, that the water will soon stop flowing from the mountains, and soon that stream by which I'm now sitting will dry up. And I might have started worrying at that point. Elijah didn't know anything about it, and he got to the river, or the stream, and he just sat there, and sure enough, it dried up. What would you have done in those circumstances? There was going to be a drought and famine in all the land. You had caused it through your prayer. Now, there's a situation. In fact, you've made your own problem. The other thing is, you know that God has brought you into this place. Of course, you thought it was going to be flowing with water. And so it was when you got there. A few days later, however, it's dry and barren. And notice, God led him there. Why did God lead him there? Because God was able to do far more exceeding abundantly than Elijah could ask or think. And as Elijah sat by that street, he must have said, God, how wonderful, you've provided my need. And then in the morning, there was no stream. And immediately, Elijah, therefore, had to go forward with the Lord. Now, he knew God had taken him to that position. He knew God had led him to that spot. Therefore, he could trust the Lord to get him out of that spot as well. And God will often lead you into circumstances. You know that it was right when you went into those circumstances. And when you're in the middle of them, it all seems to dry up around you. It's then that the maturity you have starts showing forth. When you can be peaceful, though the whole world is collapsing around you, you're a mature believer in the Lord. And it's very easy to be peaceful when everything's going your way. The moment it stops, your maturity is going to come forth. Now, of course, Satan leads you into difficult circumstances. He creates problems. But God is so big, he can give you peace in those problems. You can also cause your own problems. And that's a big one. Uh, don't worry, God is bigger than you are. And that means you can also have peace when you have caused your own problems. And when God leads you into difficult circumstances, you can also have peace. In fact, what did he say? What did he say to Peter? He knew Peter was going to deny him. He said, don't worry. When you've turned again, strengthen your brethren. He didn't have any worry about it. And Peter denied the Lord, yet he went on to be one of the most fantastic Christians that there's ever been. Now, there's the heritage of believers. And the Word of God is there to produce faith within us. It says in uh, Romans 10, I think verse 17, that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And there are promises in this Bible which are there specially for you. I've of often in the past described them as armchairs. There's an armchair for every type of weariness you get. Um, in the Psalms, they're described as a butler and a shield. A shield was a huge shield that you could hide behind. A butler was a small little hand shield. There's a promise for the small problems, and there's a promise for the big problems. In fact, there's a shield right over this world. And there's a shield over every single worry that can come your way. One of the biggest shields, of course, is, I will never leave you, nor forsake you, saith the Lord. What a big shield that is. That covers a lot of problems. You see, God has got these promises just for us, and we can claim them. We can claim them in every single circumstance in our lives. Now, sometimes, though you say it, it doesn't seem to be true inside. Have you noticed that? Sometimes you can claim a promise, and still you've got turmoil inside. Don't worry. You carry on claiming the promise, and it's not long before the Word of God produces faith inside. Often you can claim a particular promise... And apparently nothing happens. Then another problem comes along, and another, and another, and suddenly after five problems you realise, yes, that promise is now real to you. I can give you an example. What about Romans 12:19? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. 
Now, the, one of the biggest problems in the body of Christ anywhere is the problem of gossip. You know that. You see, and it's satanic, it's absolutely from hell. Yeah, and it's a hard one. Now, what does the Lord say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Now, if God is going to repay, you don't have to. And that's a hard one. It really is. Now, remember, when I first claimed that promise, I couldn't sleep at all the next time. I was thinking, now, who, who's been told about this? Because I've got to go and defend myself there, there, I've got to go and justify myself here, here. And you get all upset, you know, and all tense, you know what I mean? And then I got through it and I suddenly realised, God, you've done it. You have actually soothed over the situation. You've justified me. Thank you, Lord. Oh, hallelujah, and I rejoiced. Two weeks later, something else happened. You see, similar type of thing. Oh, panic again. But praise God, I can really say now that when I claim... Romans 12:19, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I believe it, so much so that as soon as I hear it, I can get straight to bed and sleep so soundly, it's unbelievable. If God is your uh, defense lawyer, you don't have to defend yourself. Can you imagine it? In the court of law, Jesus is your defense lawyer, and the judge says, now time for the defense. You both stand up and you both start, start talking. Jesus is the one who's looking after you. Hallelujah. What about this one? 1 Samuel 17, 47. What about that? The battle is the Lord's. Now, if the battle's the Lord's, it means you don't have to fight. Oh. How many times have you said, oh, the battle is the Lord's, and then you've got into training? You see? <laughs> or then you've started stockpiling your ammunition just to check you're ready. No, it's ridiculous. But don't worry. Start claiming the promises, the big ones, the small ones. There's a promise for every occasion. And it's not long before you won't have to start stockpiling ammunition. Because the word of God will have produced the faith inside. Acknowledge him in all circumstances. And you'll soon find he will direct thy paths. Wouldn't it have been ridiculous if Moses, having come to the Red Sea had said to the people, Exodus 14, 14, as I would say, he said, stand still and see the salvation which the Lord shall give you this day. And there he was, giving swimming lessons or boat building lessons to get across the Red Sea. <coughs> that would have been ridiculous. Moses was a mature believer. He didn't, have to, he didn't worry about the Egyptians in the slightest. He said, stand still, don't do anything, don't worry, don't think about it. I'm going... The Lord will do it. <coughs> Hallelujah. As easy as that. Moses had learned that he couldn't do it, but God did. And if God had said he was going to take the people out of Egypt, they were going out of Egypt. Hallelujah. Moses was only the servant of the Lord. And a pylon never carries the electricity itself. You see, it doesn't actually come into the pylon. It goes over the pylon. And so Moses could stand there saying, thank you, Lord. You remember the incident? Right through the wilderness, they were always looking to Moses instead of to the Lord. Two million people wanting water. They come to Moses and say, give us a drink. Moses didn't have a drink. Could Moses produce water? He could not. But the Lord could. Hallelujah. Two of the greatest promises, and we're going to deal with one of them in detail tonight. The first, the first great promise is 1 John 1, 9. And we dealt with that last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the second one is Romans 8, 28, and we're going to have a look at it. Look at 1 John 1, 9. It's a promise. Your emotions and your heart are evil. You commit a sin, and Satan wants you to be ineffective for Jesus. So you flounder about that sin for three or four months. You can't get going again. Your sin gets you down. 1 John 1 9 says all you have to do is confess it and he's faithful it doesn't say you're faithful it says he's faithful he'll forgive you your sin praise the Lord and that should enable you to immediately pick yourself up brush yourself off and start all over again forgetting the things that lie behind you can press on immediately your sin is no longer an anchor on your Christian life you can cut it off and go straight on. And there's going to be another sin. 1 John 1 9 covers it. David knew that exactly. David was saved just as you are. He believed on the Messiah who was to come. And his sins were forgiven in the same way. Let's turn quickly to Psalm 32. I didn't quite have time to 
finished this off last time, but let's see David. 1,000 years before Jesus came on the earth. Psalm 32. And we can just read the first part. Now here it is. Blessed is he, happy is he. Happy. Are you happy? Because Jesus has forgiven your sins, you should be. Otherwise you're not obeying the word of God. <laughs> happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in ho whose spirit there is no guile. Now he recalls a personal incident where he did not confess his sin. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into drought of summer. Selah. And that's discipline from the Lord. If you don't confess your sins, he, as your good father, will come along and he will discipline you because you're his child. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. What about that then? Think on that. Now, notice he didn't say anything else. He claimed Leviticus 5.5. 5. He confessed his sins. And off he went. It was as easy as that. And this is David speaking. A thousand years before Jesus came on, onto the earth. And the great thing about all these promises is you can see from people's lives in the Old and New Testament how the promises produced faith and peace inside them. Let's turn to the other promise. And this we're going to spend some time on this. Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28. I don't think two other prom any other promises have been used to such effect in this fellowship as 1 John 1, 9 and Romans 8, 28. In fact, we get so used to it, we can't believe it when other people don't know what they are. And I think this gave us such a stable basis in this fellowship for growth that um, we've seen the growth and the Lord's been able to do what he wanted to do in our midst because we had this stability. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Let's see where we go. And we know. And when it says we know, it means we know very in great detail. We understand it fully. That should witness an amen in your heart that you know this. In other words, that you have claimed this promise and have used it so effectively that as I'm reading it out, you can say, Amen, Lord. Should be so. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Does it say, and we know that all things are good? It doesn't. In fact, we know that many things are very bad. But what do we know? We know that they're going to work together for good. Now, notice, it says this, to them that love God, well, that's a believer. All of us here love God. We've given our hearts to the Lord. But notice the second one. To them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, immediately, we get some people who come along and they say, Ah, oh, but you see, we're not all called. And they'll say, No, this actually only applies if you've got a special job on. God has told you to go on the mission field. So everything to do with your missionary activity will work to the good. But not anything else. I'm sorry about that. They limit the promise. Unfortunately, they don't know the book of Romans very well. Because in the first chapter of Romans, in verse 6, if you'd like to turn to it, keep your finger in Romans 8, 28. <coughs> Paul has already defined what, the, or rather who, the called are. And here it is. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? The moment, and he was talking, by the way, here, to the whole Roman church. Every single believer. And he's saying to them, I'm called to be an apostle. But he's saying, but every believer, are the every, every single believer belongs to a group of people who are the called. And you're the called 
in Rome. And ye, brethren, here are the called in Chichester. Now, what's it say? All things work to the good to them who are called according to the purpose of God. God's purpose in you is that you will be conformed to the image of his son. And you've been called to that. God is going to produce that inside of you. Therefore, all things work to the good to you. Now, you're a believer. That's a promise for you. You've lost everything. Your car's been stolen. Your house has been broken into. Your new books have just gone. You've lost your job. You've got no money left. And God says, well, what are you going to do now? And you should say, I'm going to praise you, Lord, because I know all things will work to the good because I love you and because I'm one of the called. That's what you should be able to say. You see, this promise gives you peace in every single circumstance that can come your way. It doesn't matter what circumstance. It might be a good circumstance. Well, it will work to the good. It might be a bad circumstance. Well, it will work to the good. So you're oppressed. Hallelujah. Because it's going to work to the good. So Peter denied the Lord. Praise the Lord. Romans 8, 28. It worked to the good. Just as Jesus said it would. And Peter became so strong afterwards. It was marvellous. You see, all things are not good. But they all work to the good. To them that love God. And who are called according to his purpose. Everything can be going wrong in your life, but if you have a revelation of Romans 8.28, you will have peace, as if everything's going alright. And sometimes, I would add this, sometimes when everything's going alright, is the time when you are spiritually the most powerless. Because then, instead of having to trust the Lord, you can trust your money that's coming in regularly. You can trust your peaceful home life. God will soon make sure that that's disturbed. Maturity comes through these problems. Uh, 1 Peter tells us that, actually. He talks about the trial of our faith, more precious than gold. You see, your faith will be tried and you will reach maturity. But God wants you to have peace in all circumstances. Romans 8:28. All things work to the good to them that love God. Now, there are so many examples of this in the Old Testament, it's hard to choose which one to deal with. But my two favourites are Daniel and Joseph. But I'm not dealing with Daniel tonight because he's a spiritual believer. So I'm going on to the other one, Joseph. Could you please turn to Genesis 37? Genesis 37. I love Genesis. I think uh, I'm always uh, claiming a different book as being my favourite book. But I think Genesis comes up more than any other book when I say it's my favourite. Genesis chapter 37. Now, as we read this chapter, there are three principles I want you to keep in mind. And I would suggest you get these down in your notes because they're very important and they apply to every single believer. All right? Here they are. Number one. God is always faithful to a believer. That's the first one. God is always faithful to a believer. His faithfulness depends not on you. It depends on him. In fact, we've already studied the passage in Timothy where it says, Though we are faithless, yet he is faithful. Why? Because he can't deny himself. He's always faithful. Now that's an assurance, isn't it? He never changes. And he was faithful yesterday. He's going to be faithful to you today. Praise the Lord. The second one is, he turns cursing into blessing for a believer. There's no believer today who can dwell under cursing. You can't. God will always turn it into blessing. Some believers spend all their time trying to stay under cursing. But it doesn't work. He turns it to blessing. And the third principle is Romans 8.28, that all things work to the good to them that love God. And we're going to see it in the life of a young lad of 17. We're going to see it come to pass in his life. Now keep those three principles in mind and we can't go far wrong. In fact, I would recommend this. Keep those principles in mind no matter which chapter of the Old Testament you're reading especially if it's of other character, and you will find that that's really the message God wanted from that character. Whether it be Elijah, Elisha, 
any of them. Isaiah especially is a good example. There are so many. Now, here we go. And we're introduced to a young man, Joseph. This is verse 1. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. Canaan was the land of promise. God had promised Abraham this land, but you see, Jacob was there. But before they could get back there, they had to be in Egypt for 400 years. And here he was living there, but it was only a temporary measure. And at this time, he had 11 sons. 11 sons. Uh, by the way, the 12th, Benjamin, wasn't yet born. Now, that's very significant, as we're going to see later on. There are 11 sons here. And they go from Reuben, who was the eldest, right down to Joseph, who was the youngest at this time. And what a motley crew they were. If you had 11 sons like this, I don't think you could exist in this welfare state. I just don't think it's possible. Uh, let me just take a few uh, characters. I've written four up here uh, to take it. Reuben was the oldest. Now, Reuben was a good fellow. In fact, there were only two good sons, actually, Reuben and Joseph. The only problem with Reuben was um, that he was rather unstable and he was very weak. But he was a very noble, he was a very nice chap, you see. Very nice. But unstable. And very, very, very weak. Now, one thing we should know about the firstborn, if, if I can digress slightly here. The firstborn, in these times, had three things that came to them automatically. Here they are, I've written them down. And uh, this applies to Reuben. <clears throat> First of all, they had the rulership in the family. If you were the oldest in the family in these days, you were the ruler of the family among the children. In a way, that's still true today, isn't it? That the eldest has authority in the family. The youngest always ignores that authority, as I've learned from my own family. The second thing was the priesthood. The eldest son always was the priest for the family. Now remember this, this is before the Levitical priesthood came into action. The eldest son was the priest. He was the one who would make the sacrifices for the family. And the third one was he always got the double portion. So that when the father died, his money was distributed between all his sons, but the eldest son was given a double portion. That made sure that he maintained the rulership in the family. Now, Reuben had those three things coming to him as a, as a matter of uh, order. You see, he had both of these three things. But he lost all of them because he was so unstable. He lost the rulership to Judah. And Jesus, by the way, who was king of Israel, is not from Reuben. He's from Judah. Reuben's instability caused Jesus not to be a Reubenite, but from the tribe of Judah. That's why he came from the tribe of Judah. Oh, if only Reuben knew what he was losing. I'm not going into the story of it, his carnality. You can read it in Genesis. The priesthood was lost. Who did that go to? Levi. Levi got the priesthood. That's a miracle. Wait till we get on to Levi. Fantastic story. He lost the priesthood. He also lost the double portion. The double portion went straight on to Joseph. And you remember Joseph had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. And there was the double portion. You see? What a shame. A noble person, but his instability caused him to lose these great things. Your instability will also cause you to miss out with the Lord. You see, that's why Romans 8.28 is so important to you. And why 1 John 1.9 is so important. There are many people of very good intentions. Their hearts are so right. But they're so unstable they don't get anywhere with the Lord. They need the promises of God, and they need them effective in their lives. Look at the second fellow, Levi. Perhaps the most mean and cruel person in the whole Old Testament. Levi was shocking. The second most shocking person was Simeon, his brother. It's so awful. It was so awful. You know what he did? To get revenge upon another person. They went into a field, and they hamstrung the oxen. Now, if you hamstring uh, an oxen, you cut their muscles in half. You don't kill the animal. 
you cut their muscles in half. And to every single oxen that this fellow owned, Levi went in to the field and he cut their muscles in half. Now, it was just pointless, it was just mean, it was just cruel. This was the type of fellow Levi was. And yet, what a miracle of grace. God cursed him. God said, Levi, because you've done this thing, you will never have any property in Israel. I will never allow you to inherit any land. And that was the word of the Lord. It couldn't be broken. He couldn't inherit any land. It was a cursing. But Levi confessed his sin to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. He confessed it. Now God was stuck. He'd said, Levi... You are under a curse. You'll never get any inheritance. And then Levi said, I'm sorry, Lord. So what could God do? He turned the cursing into blessing because he said, Right, Levi, I'm going to make you the priest. You're going to be the priest. And the special benefit of being a priest is you don't need any land because everyone else provides for you. What a fantastic <coughs> thing. You see, this is 1 John 1, 9 in Genesis. No more. This is the type of thing that should be expounded from the pulpit in every church every week. They should do a verse-by-verse -verse study of 1 John 1, 9 in Genesis. Because these are the things that make you grow. This is why Peter says, sincerely desire the milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You see? And what do we get? We just get man's thought. A man's thought will not make you grow in faith. The word of God will. And Levi will. Levi's rottenness will make you grow in faith. Anyone here ever hamstrung an ox? God is able to take care of your biggest sin as well as your smallest sin. He knows all your sins. He knew them millions of years ago before you knew about them. Hallelujah. And when Jesus died, he had to make sure that the salvation he provided was big enough to cover every sin. That's why you can't lose your salvation. Because God didn't misplan. He planned it specially for you. Praise the Lord. The next one, Judah. By the way, you might say, how do I know all of this? All I'm <coughs> quoting to you is Genesis 49. When Jacob sits down and he tells you the character of every single one of his sons, his description of Judah is a lion's whelp, a young lion. In other words, Judah has great potential, but it's not developed yet. He's got potential as a leader, but it's not developed. Issachar is described as a donkey lying down between the... The weights, you see. That means he was very lazy. <laughs> Dan is called a viper in the path. Dan was shocking. Dan and Levi, I'd have trouble choosing between them. And Simeon, yes, there are the three. Dan was awful. In fact, he's so bad that when in the tribulation uh, the 144,000 go forth to preach the gospel, there's no one from the tribe of Dan. He's so bad. He never confessed his sins. Never. You see, and this fellow was awful. Well, I could go right through the list of them. Benjamin wasn't so hot either. Everyone has a soft spot for Benjamin because he was such a young boy. He grew into a monster. He really did. <laughs> These were shocking, but you see, we've got to face facts. Jacob faced the facts. That's why we have Genesis 49 in the, in the Bible, you see. But here they are, Reuben, the firstborn. Joseph is the youngest at this time. In fact, Benjamin was still to be born. And so we come on. Now, I'm going to shatter some of your Sunday school illusions as we go through. I'm sorry about this. Don't throw anything at me now. <laughs> Wait until afterwards. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. Now, Unfortunately, it's not quite accurate. Was feeding suggests more than that. It actually was shepherding. Shepherding. And the odd thing is that the Hebrew is very clear on this, that he wasn't only feeding the sheep, he was also looking after his brothers. His brothers were all older than he was. But they were such a rotten lot that Jacob could only trust Joseph, and he sent his brother out into the field and said, Joseph, I want to report on your brethren. Now, you can imagine the type of uh, reaction that would have caused among the brethren. Absolutely awful. Joseph was 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhar. They are, that's Dan and Naphtali. 
She had two, Dan and Naptali. And with the sons of Zilpah, that's Gad and Asher. So he was with four of his brethren. You see? Uh, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. And that is actually an evil report about them. What had they been doing? Instead of looking after the sheep, instead of watching for the wolves, they'd been messing about. They'd been playing cards. You see? They'd been doing something else. They certainly weren't watching the sheep. And Joseph was there, and he reported back to his father. He gave an evil report concerning these four. Now, that's odd, isn't it? That a lad of 17 should be given that responsibility. And may I say, it did nothing for the unity of the family. Absolutely nothing. Um, verse 3. Now, Israel, that's another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children. There's nothing wrong with loving one of your children more than another of your children. That's natural. But where Jacob went wrong was he showed preference for that child. And at that point, trouble starts. You see, you have a responsibility to bring up all of your children the same. The same. You might in your heart love one more than perhaps another. But you must show them no a discrepancy at all. You must treat them equally, every single one. And here was Jacob. He loved Joseph more than any of the other children that he had. And he didn't just leave it at that. He then treated them, Joseph, wrongly. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Now you would think, reading that, wouldn't you, that he loved him because well, he was old when Joseph was born. But notice, Joseph is 17 years old, and Benjamin still hasn't been born yet. So he couldn't have been all that old. Actually, it's an idiom. It doesn't mean that at all. Uh, the son of his old age means his wisest son. Old age always stood for wisdom. And he loved Joseph because Joseph was so wise. You see, at this time he was about to have another child. So it couldn't have been his old, old age. It might have been his middle age. You see? But in fact, there it says he loved him because he was the son of his old age. It's an idiom. He loved him because he was wiser than any of his other children. He had wisdom of an old man. That's what it's saying. And here I'm going to shatter your illusions. And he made him a coat of many colours. Well, <clears throat> in every single book written for children, you always see Joseph in his brightly coloured garment. <laughs> and there are even... Um, stage productions about Joseph's many-coloured dream coat. You know, I'm ever so sorry, it's not there at all. It's not there at all. It actually, it says, and he made him a long coat with sleeves. And even the Amplified gets it right. The Amplified says it very clearly. He made him a long coat with sleeves, and we don't even know the colour of it. We're not told the colour. The Hebrew just says it was a long coat with sleeves. Now, what's so important about that? You see, to have a many-coloured coat is meaningless. But what's so important about having a long coat with sleeves? Well, the longer your coat was, the more authority you had. That's the significance of it. That's why it's here. It's not just added, you know, for a, a little pleasantry on the side so that it can be taught to children. It's not added for that. It's added to teach us something. And in these days, the longer your garment was, the more authority you had. You see, and it was always true. Uh, and this is the trouble. Joseph could walk around with a garment right down to his ankles and sleeves right down to his wrists. But Reuben, who was the eldest, had to wear something around his knees and around his elbows. Now, this was so wrong of Jacob. Because Joseph, wherever he went, stood apart from his brethren. And there must have been catcalls as they walked down the street from people to Reuben. Oh, Reuben! Uh, how's your brother treating you these days? You know the one, your younger brother. Do you see? And they could all see it because of this long garment. Now that's why it's added. It was very wrong. Very wrong indeed. And there's trouble. Uh, let's see the type of trouble that came. I don't blame these brethren altogether for this. Uh, verse 4, notice what it says. They hated him. Can you see that? They hated him. Verse 5, they hated him yet more. Verse 8, and they hated him yet the more. Verse 11, and his brethren envied him. By the way, these are some of the most awful sins that Christians could possibly commit. 
you see, and these are all sins inside your head. I may not know about them, but your Father in heaven does, and they get you out of fellowship. You might be embarrassed if your hatred shows through, but you should be embarrassed before God if it's even there. It gets you out of fellowship. These are all mental sins, and they're just as real as physical sins. Everyone seems to be preoccupied with physical sins, but it's your mental sins that are your real problem. Your envy, your jealousy, your hatred, they'll cause you to do terrible things. If you're jealous of someone, you cannot look at them as a normal brother or sister in the Lord. It's just terrible. It really is. And then, verse, uh, verse 18, they conspired against him. Verse 19, they ridicule him. And verse 20, they plan to kill him. There it is. Verse 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 20. Their hatred of him grows and grows and grows. Now let's see the story of it. Verse 4. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they shouldn't have seen it. It was wrong. You see, but when they saw that, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. To speak peaceably, the, the greeting was always shalom, peace, shalom. And they couldn't even say shalom to him. They hated him so much. Couldn't speak peaceably to him. Verse 5. Things begin getting a little worse now. And Joseph dreamed a dream. And this dream, by the way, was from the Lord. God was speaking through a dream to Joseph. His brethren hated him so much they couldn't receive it. I've known that in my own ministry. People unable to receive what I have ministered because I've been out of fellowship with them. And it's sometimes been my fault, I should hasten to add. You see? But the brethren here, they had their, their backs were already up. And here was God communicating his word, and they couldn't receive it, and there's a vision. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. Jesus said, cast not thy pearls before swine, because they'll trample them in the mud. And it's true. Verse 6, he said unto them, hear I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, all we eleven brothers. And lo, my sheaf arose... And also stood upright, and behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. You can imagine what this did to them. <laughs> but it was God. God was speaking. And what he was saying is, one day Joseph would be ruler of this family. God, uh, actually, his father had already seen that in his character, and wrongly had made him the ruler already. You see, But one day he was going to be the ruler, and God had revealed it to him. When God speaks words to you, it's to give you peace in a situation. And we're going to see how jo uh, Joseph failed in just a moment. He should have remembered it. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, God then gives him another dream. Verse 9. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. Who's the sun? That's his father. Who's the moon? That's uh, his mother. Who are the eleven stars? They, they are his eleven brothers. Now, I praise God when God gives a vision. It's perfect. He should have seen ten stars. But God knew that when this was going to be fulfilled, there was going to be another little brother. Jacob didn't know it. No. Rachel didn't know it. Joseph didn't know it. But God knew it. And that's why Genesis is so perfect. Hallelujah. God always speaks the truth. And this represented the whole family. And Joseph said, one day you're all going to bow down in front of me. Well, you can imagine. By the way, uh, Revelation 12 is very little understood because people don't know Genesis. Revelation 12 speaks of a woman. She's clothed with the sun, has the moon under her feet, and 12 stars round her head. Oh, I wonder who that can be. Who have we got here? What have we got here? We've got sun and moon, 11 stars and one other star. Yes, it's the Jews. Definite representation. It's the family of Jacob, the Jews. You see? The, you don't need a commentary on the Bible. It's its own commentary. You see? If you don't understand one passage, you look for it elsewhere. You'll soon understand it. And there can be no doubt, then, when God speaks. And here it is, verse 10. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. He had a cheek, actually. 
But I mean, he did it, told it to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? Verse 11. And his brethren envied him. But his father observed the saying. His father was more mature in the Lord. And he thought, Lord, perhaps this is of you. I'd better watch it. Actually, he forgot it later on. But at this time, he was keen to remember it. <laughs> just like us we haven't changed a bit we believers we really haven't verse 12 and his brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem he had a field in Shechem and the flock was there so they went to feed the flock you see verse 13 <clears throat> Israel Jacob was worried what his sons up to Joseph hasn't gone with them they might be doing anything what's happening and Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. He said, uh, said to him, Here am I. He says, Go, please, to your brethren. I want to report on their behavior. They'd already got one bad report. A second one could do endless damage. So off he goes. Verse 14, And he said to him, Go, I pray thee, see whether it be well with thy brethren, and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So Joseph went, out of the vale of Hebron, and came to Shechem. Where were the brethren? They weren't in Shechem. No, they should have been, but they weren't. No, no, no. They decided they were bored with Shechem. They've moved on to a much more exciting place, nearer the desert, called Dothan. You see? And this is the very thing Joseph had been sent to check up on. And he arrives, and he's in the field, looking. And a certain man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What seekest thou? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren and found them in Dothan. Now you know what this means. It would mean that they'd get another bad report. And when they saw him afar off, he's just on his way, and the brethren see him. Even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. Oh, if this news gets back, we're finished, they say. So I'll tell you what, we'll kill him. You see what a rotten bunch of individuals this was. We're going to kill him. Verse 20. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him, and cast him into some pit. And we will say, some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. And notice the last bit. And we shall see what shall become of his dreams. I want you to know something. That was the word of the Lord. And nothing can break the word of the Lord. <laughs> Not the biggest conspiracy in history can break the word of the Lord. Do you see? Oh yes, if we kill him, let's see what happens to his dreams. They should have known better. But they didn't, obviously, at this time. And who comes to the rescue? Reuben. A very noble man, but so weak. Now, Reuben, as the eldest, he should have said, Nonsense, we are not going to do it. But he didn't. He was too weak. So finally he said, Well, I'll tell you what, I'll trick them. I'll trick them into not doing this. And so he devises a little plan. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him. And there it should end. And then this should be in brackets, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. You see, his plan was, put him in the pit, and as soon as they'd moved on, he'd rescue, rescue him out of the pit and deliver him back to his father. That was his plan. The brethren messed it up. Oh dear. And by the way, God didn't leave Reuben around to rescue Joseph. God was quite able to do it. You see, and that's why you as a believer, you only need the Lord, really. He is big enough for every circumstance in your life. And that's why we're trying to get man out of the picture in this fellowship. We've got to be Jesus-orientated, not man-orientated. Praise the Lord. Now, we're going to have ministers in the body. Yes, fair enough. But we've got to see Jesus at all times. Jesus. And man cannot help you. Jesus can help you. Hallelujah. So go to him. And it was a great plan. Reuben had. Verse 23, And it came to pass, when Joseph was come unto his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his coat of, no, his long-sleeved coat that was on him. And they took him and cast him 
into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. What's that? It's Romans 8, 28 for a start. You see? This was a deep well. And fortunately, there hadn't been any rain for the last three weeks. So there was no water in the pit. Was that coincidence? Was that chance? It was not. It was because three weeks before, God knew that this was going to happen. And it was dried up. It's Romans 8, 28. Do you know, God knows the problems you're going to get two weeks from now. And already, something is happening somewhere that's going to be just perfect for your particular problem. He's already moving things round to cope with your problem. Can you believe that? You should be able to here. No rain had fallen. The well, instead of having water in it, had no water in it. And Joseph, instead of drowning the bottom of this pit, he lands on dry ground. Hallelujah. Now, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, there was silence. In fact, he went to sleep. He had a great time. What does Joseph do? Well, I'm afraid Joseph's only 17. And he starts wailing and crying and begging and pleading. Tries everything in the book. How do I know? It's not here. No. But it's later on. 20 years later, Joseph was ruler of the whole of Egypt. And the brethren start speaking. Let's just have a quick look at it. Keep your finger in the place. Genesis 42. Genesis 42. By the way, was it good that his brethren hated him? No, it wasn't. But Romans 8, 28 says it will work to the good. Was it good they threw him in the pit? It was not. But Romans 8, 28 says it's going to work for the good. And now we're seeing the results. You see, this is 20 years later. He is ruler of Egypt. He wouldn't have been if he hadn't been down that pit. He's now ruler of Egypt. And they said one to another, these are, the, these are the brothers talking after they knew about Joseph. And they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Now they saw his anguish, they, he besought them. He was down that pit crying his eyes out. He hadn't learned the lesson that Daniel had learned. You see, Daniel was over 90 when he was thrown down the pit. Joseph was only 17, wailing away. Do you know, if you are mature in the Lord, you'd be sitting at the bottom of the pit, praising the Lord, saying, Oh, Lord, thank you, Romans 8, 28. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> what was Joseph doing? Moaning, wailing. Oh, I'm so sad. Oh, this is none of my fault. Oh, what a terrible family. Oh, if only it hadn't been like this. I just wish I'd been there. I could have leant over the side and said, Joseph, be quiet, please. Romans 8, 28. <laughs> you see? You might have given them a bit of peace inside then. It would have been thrilling. You see? After all this time, they heard him beseeching them. This is a rotten lot of brethren, their own brother down a pit, and they're having a picnic by the side of it. What about that? It's just terrible, you see? And by the way, Reuben speaks up at this point, verse 22, and Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. I told you so, is how we would translate it. I told you so, 20 years late. Should have had the, uh, the fortitude as leader of the family to have said it at the beginning. He didn't. Let's go back to Genesis 37 and see the results. Right? Here we go. And they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked, and behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery and balm. The balm of Gilead, by the way, this was, the super type of medicine that they had in those days. And myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. It just so happened that this pit happened to be on a major road. Just so happened. What was that? It was Romans 8, 28. The pit had no water in it. It was by a major camel route, and they were just sitting down to eat. When? What should happen? A camel train passes by. Do you realise if that camel train had left an hour later, it would have missed them? An hour sooner, it would have missed them? Three weeks before, God had planned their timetable. And perhaps the, uh, they had planned to leave earlier, and one of the camels had broken its leg. And they were sitting there saying, honestly, three days delay. 
Three days and two hours delay. Just terrible. And God was saying, right, you're ready to go. Perfect. Because we don't know what would have happened to Joseph down that pit if they hadn't been by a caravan route and had not a caravan gone past at that time. It was Romans 8, 28. Joseph was in God's hands, even at the bottom of the pit. Now it's thrilling. Do you know, you are as well. You are. He didn't know. He knew nothing about it. But Romans 8, 28 should tell you that you're going to be all right. You see? Should, should tell you that and give you peace. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? What profit? This is Judah. Judah now speaks up. He says, Look, if we kill our brother, we won't make any money. No profit. You see? So there's no profit in that. I tell you what, he says, verse 27, Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites were descended from Abraham as well, by the way. These are sort of uh, cousins. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brethren were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen. Now, this caravan contains some Midianites who were merchantmen. And they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. They were going to sell him in Egypt for 30 pieces of silver. But that was all right, a pretty good price. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. Can I just stop there? Was it good that jo Jacob had uh, treated Joseph wrongly? It was not good. But it works to the good to them that love God. Was it good his brethren hated him? It was not good. Not at all good. But it worked to the good. Was Reuben's suggestion good? Yes, it was good. And it was going to work to the good. Praise the Lord. Was Judah's suggestion to sell him good? It was not. It was very bad. But it was going to work to the good. Was it good that the Ishmaelites and Midianites had come along at that time? It was very good. And it was going to work to the good. Was it good that he was going to be sold as a slave? It was not good. But it was going to work to the good. Was it good that he was going to be sold into the house of Potiphar? Yes, it was. Very good. And it was going to work to the good. It doesn't matter whether your circumstances are good or bad or indifferent. They will all work to the good. Why? Because God has covenanted with you in love. While you were enemies, he gave you his best. Now you're his children, he's going to give you better than his best. <laughs> That's what it's saying, you see. Not only will the good things of your life bless you, the bad things are going to bless you as well. Well, there's nothing else not to bless you now. And it means everything in your life is a blessing for you. Now, oh, what an amazing statement, you see. Only Joseph at this time was so immature, he didn't realise it. Do you know, he could have had peace in this situation, but he didn't. He learnt later on to have peace in every circumstances. When you get problems and you get down, don't worry. But learn from your mistakes. Learn what it is to claim the word of God in every situation. Learn what it is to have Romans 8:28 so living inside of you that it comes true in your circumstances. And it can't go wrong. Really can't. Let's just read to the end. 29, and Reuben returned unto the pit. This is Reuben. You see, he'd deliberately gone off by himself, hoping his brethren would also go off. And they hadn't. See, ruined. But finally, they went, they went off. And he comes back to the pit. Good, my plan is now going to work. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he rent his clothes. God didn't need that. And he returned unto his brethren and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colours, the long one with the sleeves. And they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's and captain of the guard. 
and later on worse things were going to happen to him. You see, a woman was going to fall in love with him and want him, he was going to reject her and she was going to start spreading lies, which resulted in him being put into prison and he didn't cry. Not this time. He'd learnt something, you see, and being put into prison was the very way that he became leader, ruler under Pharaoh of the whole of Egypt. Twenty years passed by and his being in Egypt was not just a blessing to himself, it was a blessing to the brethren who put him in the pit. Because Romans 8.28 applied even to them. Their actions to Joseph were Romans 8.28 and they worked to their good as well as to his good. No wonder we can say in everything give thanks because all things work to the good to them that love God. Hallelujah.